It's a new year, 2022, and what better way to start out than with a NASDAQ stock plunge, at least according to the Financial Times yesterday. Jeff, what's today? Today is Thursday, the 7th? Yesterday. Yes? Am I right? The 6th of January. Okay, good. 2022. That is the right year. So on Wednesday, there was a big downturn in the NASDAQ, according to the Financial Times, quote, investors dash out of U.S. stocks in a powerful market rotation. The NASDAQ closed down 3.3% in the worst day since February 2021. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it would be more dramatic if it was like 1981 or something like that. But here's what would happen here. Investors dump shares in many of the technology companies that surged during the pandemic as the looming specter of higher interest rates prompted them to buy into businesses more tightly linked to the economic recovery. I've got some horrifying numbers here, Jeff. Apple was down 2.7%, Microsoft 3.8%, Google 4.7%, Amazon 1.9%, Tesla, which I had mortgaged lots of money on, 5.4%. So I'm poor, Jeff. And all you know what they continue here in the article here saying, get this. Spec tech is getting wrecked, said Hani Reda, a portfolio manager at Pinebridge Investments, referring to unprofitable speculative technology companies with high valuations that are being hardest hit. Sounds just like the 1990s, like irrational exuberance, which comes from where, Jeff? Well, the term or the 90s? <laughs> Let's focus on the term. It's the 25th anniversary. Oh, let's start with the term. Okay. Yes, irrational exuberance was a term invented by Alan Greenspan. I think it was December 5th or 6th of 1996. So 25 years ago last month, there was no anniversary celebration. So I was kind of surprised <laughs> because people our age sure as hell remember the irrational exuberance speech, young in our careers, you know, our careers stretching before us for far into the future, thinking about nothing but stocks and technology and the new economy, as it was called back then. Yes. And here was Alan Greenspan, the well-respected Federal Reserve chairman, saying, hang on a second, people. Let's take a look at what's really going on here. And the thing about irrational exuberance and that particular speech was it wasn't really about the stock market. But yet everybody back in 1996, that's all they heard, because even by then there was already this kind of nagging feeling that stocks were doing something they maybe shouldn't be doing. Maybe we were getting into asset bubble territory and it was kind of new, didn't really know much to make about it. It was in one sense pretty kind of interesting that most people sort of focused in on the stock angle rather than listening to what the guy actually said, which, of course, would become a common theme throughout the rest of the 1990s when Alan Greenspan, more than maybe anybody else in economics or central banking, was actually spilling the beans at the time. And he was actually being honest about what was really going on, because at that time he thought, well, it wouldn't make a difference. You make that point in your article, which is titled, We Would Do Well to Heed Alan Greenspan's Words from 1996. That was posted at Real Clear Markets on the 17th of December. And you make that point, that Greenspan is infamously known for giving non-answers. It was only the other big figure in Washington during that time, President Bill Clinton, who could match him word for word in giving non-answers. And what is the definition of is, is. Here he was, as you said, more straightforward, unusual candor, straightforward language, nothing like the Fed speak he would later become infamous for. Oh man, so you did use infamous. I guess it was 
I thought I was coming up with Well, it was infamous. So we have to use, we, we both have to use that term. It was an infamous speech and it was an infamous term and it was an infamous time. Here, and you, and you tell us, it wasn't about the stock market so much. It was about something else. I'm going to read a quote and then we can go from there. Okay, so here's from his speech. At different times in our history, a varying set of simple indicators seemed successfully to summarize the state of monetary policy and its relationship to the economy. Thus, during the decades of the 1970s and 1980s, trends in money supply, first M1, then M2, were useful guides. We could convey the thrust of our policy with money supply targets, though we felt free to deviate from those targets for good reason. Unfortunately, money supply trends veered off path several years ago. We're going to have to ask him, how much did he stretch that several? Wow, that's much further, bigger stretch of several than I understand it to be. Anyways, here we go. Several years ago, as a useful summary of the overall economy, thus to keep Congress informed on what we are doing, we have been required to explain the full complexity of the substance of our deliberations and how we see economic relationships and evolving trends. What does that have to do with the NASDAQ. It doesn't, really. And what he's really saying is what we've been saying on the show all along. Here's Alan Greenspan admitting the Federal Reserve is not in the money business. The Federal Reserve doesn't do money. As he said in the second part of that quote you just read, Emil, what Alan Greenspan is saying is that since we don't really know anything about the monetary system, we can't really have a good handle on it. What we have to do instead is kind of look at a bunch of economic numbers and try to gauge whether or not our monetary policy is actually having the intended effect. So we look at the inflation rate, we look at unemployment rate, we look at GDP, we look at all these other numbers. What we don't look at is money. We don't use M1 and M2, and you're right, he stretched that term several years ago because he conflated M1 and M2 on purpose, knowing full well that M1 was obsolete 25 years before he even said those words. And M2 was probably mostly obsolete and unhelpful in the early 1980s, if not the late 1970s, but as he was speaking technically, it really didn't veer off path so dramatically until the late 1980s. So that's his several years ago. He's using M1 and M2 together and saying, well, we finally gave up on both M1 and M2 around the late 80s because it was obvious they were no longer useful. Now, where this comes into the stock market should be obvious and apparent to everybody because everybody believes in the stock bubbles are a monetary affair, right? If somebody's printing money, it goes into the stock market. And so what Alan Greenspan is saying in 1996 was, how the hell would we even know? We can't keep track of the monetary system, so we don't know if stocks are behaving rationally or irrationally. We have no way of saying or no way of determining the monetary aspect of what's going on in the stock market. But that's not really about the stock market, is it? It's about the entire global economy. And what he's saying is, yeah, we can't keep track of money for stocks, but by implication and by insinuation, we also can't keep track of money for the real economy, the real global economy either. And that's the point that he was making is that we're not a central bank. He's saying in 1996, his most famous irrational exuberant speech, we don't do money. We can't do money. We don't even know how to do money. But all anybody who heard was irrational exuberant, stockbubble.com, all that stuff. And they missed the big point. They missed the boat, which was this other massive thing that would come back to bite us all in August of 2007. The mainstream media, the, the financial press miss a point. And it's such a big quote. 
Unfortunately, money supply trends veered off path several years ago. That should have been leading headline. Okay, so Jeff, if I understand this correctly, we're worried about the denominator, right? Because the stocks were denominated in dollars. And maybe nominally, they should be rising. And we've seen recent examples of that in Venezuela. The Venezuelan stock market was rip-roaring because there were so many more Bolivars. And we see the same thing, I believe, in Turkey right now. As the currency is depreciating, the stock market is gaining value nominally, right? And so is that what he was saying? He was saying, aha, we don't know if it's a rational exuberance because maybe there's a lot more money. And therefore, the denominator would suggest that the nominal value of stocks should be rising. But he also raised the point of M2. He said, you know, we don't know about M2. And in your article, you give an example that Mr. Greenspan would maybe rely on and say, hey, we have an example of just a few years ago where M2 went haywire. So why should we rely on M2? And that was about Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. What happened with M2 during that time period? Well, it wasn't really M2 so much as it was the S&L crisis. The S&L crisis was essentially the reason why M2 veered off path, but the economy never did. And that's kind of what we're really talking about here is that we're focusing on M1 and M2 as we're taught to do. Even today, we're taught that, hey, when you think about money, think about M1 and M2 or mostly M2. M3 is discontinued for reasons that actually have to do with what we're talking about. But it isn't that M2 veered off path and we fell into a depression like the 1920s because M2 actually suddenly around 1988, 1989, stopped growing at the same rate it had throughout the rest of the 1980s. So we didn't experience a deflationary, depressionary uh, monetary shock in the late 1980s, even though M2 veered off path severely. So what was really happening is that the same thing with M1 in the 1970s, the banking system, the monetary system globally, it started using other forms of money. So when the M2 form of money started to do something different, the other forms of money that we don't account for made up for that shortfall, which is why the global economy didn't fall into Great Depression II in 1989 and 1990. So what Greenspan was really saying, if you boil it down into his real cases, he wasn't just saying that M2 veered off path. What he was saying is M2 is really kind of obsolete. It doesn't capture the entire monetary realm that's out there. It's only a minor and uh, at that time decreasing subset of the global monetary system focused entirely, M2 is, on the depository parts of the monetary system, which is why... It would make sense with the SNL crisis as SNL's depository institutions were subjected to that, bait, that really serious retrenchment in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The depository form of money would also suffer too. But again, the overall point is the economy didn't fall into depression because there were other forms of money in the real economy that were making up for this deficit. So there was money out there. It's just that the Fed, nor economists, nor anybody else around the world had any idea what it was or how much it was because we focused on M2 and nobody said, well, M2 is falling off. Let's, let's develop a, a realistic M3 or M4 or L or something else. They just basically said, this is too complicated. There's more money out there and we're really at a loss here. So tell me if I have this correctly. So for a number of years, M2 was growing at a certain rate. Money was expanding. And the economy was expanding and there was some correlation between the two. Then towards the late 80s, all of a sudden we had M2 
slowed down while the economy kept pace. And because we back into velocity, it was assumed that velocity was surging through the roof, right? And so that would suggest, wait a minute, why are people using money so much more rapidly? And that Greenspan was saying, hey, there's something wrong with this measure, as you've just explained. So do I, I have that right? If M2 had fallen the rate of growth, we should fall into some sort of recession or depression. That didn't happen because we were using M3, M4, M5. Yes, velocity is supposed to be relatively stable. There's you know minor kinks and quirks and fluctuations as we go, but velocity overall, and again, we're using the equation of exchange, which isn't a really an equation. It's sort of a backwards engineered process, which velocity is a remainder of the term. So essentially velocity is supposed to be stable. And, as you're, and you're right, Emil, what happened in the late 1980s is that M2 stopped growing and actually ground to a halt almost. Growth came to almost zero, which really should have produced a massive deflationary shock in the U.S. economy if it was all representative. But the economy kept going as if nothing had happened, which meant by, you know, a simple arithmetic, V had to go way up. Now, V didn't actually go way up in any real sense. It was just a mathematical remainder because M2 was not the appropriate money supply indicator to plug into the equation of exchange. And so not just in the late 1980s, we saw the same thing happen in the 1970s with M1. If you see, if you're trying to plug in the equation of exchange and you see velocity go do something crazy, that's not a sign that velocity has gone crazy. That's a sign that you're using the wrong M. And so what Greenspan was saying, a rational exuberance was, we're using the wrong M. The economy is using other monetary forms that we don't really have a good handle on. So therefore, we really don't know. We can't use the monetary system to gauge whether or not we're actually being successful. So we have to do this workaround where we look at inflation, we look at the Phillips curve, we do all these econometric models to see whether or not this non-money monetary policy is actually producing fruitful results. Because we don't do money. That's, that's really the message here. The monetary system evolved through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it really never stopped in the 90s either. And the central banks stopped being central banks and started being something else entirely. Now, earlier, I had a, what apparently is a big non sequitur. I just mentioned Saddam Hussein. And people are wondering, is Emil crazy? Jeff didn't even answer. He was just being nice to Emil and hoping that we don't mention it. He's crazy. He's talking about Saddam Hussein. Jeff, is there any way to save my reputation? Is there any link to the invasion of Kuwait and the most recent activity we see in bond markets as we bring the story to the present? Yeah, the, the interesting part about Saddam Hussein is he does play a role here, and, and it was a role Alan Greenspan knew only too well, is if you remember, if you were around in August of 1990, Iraq suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly invaded Kuwait, and one of the immediate products of that was a spike in oil prices. In fact, it looked like the oil market knew it was coming before CNN did. Interesting. Probably before the CIA and intelligence agencies, too. Because you saw oil prices, which were relatively low through the first part of 1990, all of a sudden they more than doubled to the invasion and the, the early part of what became the Gulf War crisis up until around October, November of 1990. And that doubling of oil prices had the effect of same thing that happens throughout history when oil prices suddenly rise rapidly. We were in recession. And so, you know, a lot of people maybe remember the Gulf War, but maybe don't remember the timing or the relationship with the 1990 recession. And to be clear, we're not saying that the oil price shock caused the recession. More likely, that was the SNL crisis that caused the recession. 
But the oil shock made the uh, recession that much worse and that much more likely that it was going to be a full-blown contraction. You're not alone in that opinion. The National Bureau of Economic Research that dates American recessions said the recession began in July 1990, a month before the invasion. So SNL crisis and then the oil price shock didn't help. How do we tie it all back to the present, Jeff? You raised the the subject of the five-year tips auction in October of last year. What does that have to do with rational exuberance, money supply, oil? Well, I think most people are aware, if not just from what they pay, pay for gasoline at the pump, just paying attention to recent CPIs, as we've talked about, the heavy dose of gasoline involved in those, we are experiencing what kind of looks like an oil price shock too. And what happened on October 21st was the five-year tips auction where the five-year, as we've said before on this show, mm-hmm. the five-year tips auction has a tendency to reset the inflation break-evens in the tips market, which is exactly what happened. And in that point, at that time, the inflation break-evens leapt up, a, what was it, 17 base, some enormous, enormous amount in a single day, which ever since then, at least up until recently, the bond yields throughout the rest of the world had started to sink and growth prospects started to decline, which had all the hallmarks and telltale signs of a, an oil price shock macroeconomic case, sort of like early 1990. And where M2 and Alan Greenspan and irrational exuberance fits into all this is because we can't use M2, we can't use the, the traditional money supply definitions to say that this is inflationary because we don't have the inflationary, we at least using M2 and M1 or any of the, the traditional definitions of, of money supply, we don't have them available to say, hey, yes, this is going to be an inflationary case, not a deflationary oil supply shock case. But what we're really saying is irrational exuberance. You have to look deeper about what's going on in the monetary system than just those monetary aggregates. And when oil prices go up sharply, that's usually not a good thing for either the inflation case or the economy. Jeff, that's it for me from this episode, this article, ladies and gentlemen. You can read it again at Real Clear Markets. It was posted on the 17th of December. We would do well to heed Alan Greenspan's words from 1996. Any concluding thoughts that we didn't raise during the show? No, yeah, we should, we should heed his words from 1996 to, to 2000. It was in that five-year period where Greenspan rather frequently kept returning to this theme, which was, we don't do money. And it's really something I think we need to, th- we, more people need to be aware of. You know, I was asked recently on a radio episode for WOR in New York, why should we listen to you talk about this, you know, this Euro dollar system, this offshore shadow money system? And what I tell people is you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to, the, to these people. Alan Greenspan, 25 years ago, telling you in no uncertain terms, unusual candor. We're not a central bank. We don't do money. We don't even know how to. You don't have to take my word for it. And the implications, well, the implications of all this are the last 15, actually the last 50 years, but particularly the last 15 years of, of not just economic and financial history, but social and political and, you know, civilization's history. All right, Jeff, in part two of this episode, we're going to talk about a strange phenomenon where wages are increasing rapidly. And that seems great. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's a sign of a deflationary potential. How can that be? We're going to go back to the 1930s for answers. Ladies and gentlemen, wages in the United States are rising quickly, and that's very good news. Or is it? 
And are wages rising really? Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners, gives us a clue in the title of a recent article. He writes, what if more rapid published wage increases are actually evidence of deflationary conditions? Published, meaning what is it that we don't see? And is that important? We're actually going to talk about what happened in the 1930s when wages surged. No one would uh, confuse that as some sort of inflationary 1970s. No, here we are again, another depression, a silent depression. Wages are again surging. And we're going to learn why about it. It's an interesting phenomenon if the acronym for it is not interesting. Jeff, you posted this article on the, let's see here, I can't see, on the 3rd of January 2022. And you start out by informing us that the central bank of the Federal Reserve is not a central bank meaning they don't focus on money supply and money demand. Therefore, they're focused on narrative and looking at different economic aggregates. One of them is the unemployment rate, which we've beaten to death over many years, saying that it's uh, illusory or at, at best it's, uh, it's misleading, that there's much more to it. It's too simple just to look at the headline number. And perhaps another one of those economic aggregates that they look at that may be misleading is wages. I would think if wages are rising, it's an inflationary sign. You would think so, right? I mean, higher wages sound like exactly what the, the narrative is. As we just said in the previous segment, the Federal Reserve doesn't look at money supply for inflation because as Alan Greenspan admitted many times in the 1990s, they don't do money. So in lieu of being able to do anything about money, in lieu of being actual, an actual central bank, what do you do for non-money monetary policy You look at these economic aggregates and sort of work backwards from them and and sort of say, well, if inflation is good and where we want it to be and the economy is generally healthy and wages are generally rising, then monetary policy must be successful. If we look at those things, you know, unemployment rates falling, which means the competition for workers is is heating up, means wages are rising more, more rapidly. That sounds like hey, that's a lot of good things together. So monetary policy, as well as any other non-policy factors, must be favorable. Therefore, we should look at not just, hey, this is great, wages are up, labor market seems to be tight. Maybe we should start thinking about whether or not it becomes too tight and whether or not that can lead to the other problem, which is an inflationary problem, which is what everybody had talked about in 2021, for good reason, CPI rates through the roof. And as the Federal Reserve enters 2022 with CPI rates through the roof, the way it it calibrates and the way it thinks about inflationary pressures is expectations as well as this tight labor market stuff. So the Fed is concerned about the people are getting normalized to high CPI rates for whatever reasons, even though the reasons might be transitory for last year's supply shock stuff. That, you know, once people get normalized and they anchor inflation expectations much higher than they had been. For the Fed anyway, that's a theoretical problem. And then you combine that with this, what looks like a tightening labor market. And all of a sudden you've got the potential for a wage spiral to contribute to those higher unanchored inflation expectations. And you can see why the Federal Reserve, at least in the ECB in Europe, are so interested in becoming hawks and tapering and rate hikes and all this other stuff, because according to their theoretical approach, all these inflationary warning signs are blaring on their dashboard. Wages, unemployment rate, inflation expectations, unanchored, all of these things that the Fed really cares about because it doesn't care about money. 
Jeff, inflation expectations, we still keep bringing it up. But last year, towards the end of last year, there was a researcher at the Fed that said that, no, this is that we believe. There's no evidence. Yeah, we believe inflation. <laughs> it's completely baseless. We've I always know. been doing it this but see, way. Again, I know. I mean, this is what Alan Greenspan was actually complaining about. If you really read his speeches in the late 1990s, on the one hand, he was admitting we don't do money. But what he was really doing is complaining. He's like, what do we do? We, we're left with all this other stuff that is really unsatisfactory. And one of those other stuff we're left with is this inflation expectations nonsense. And as you're right, Jeremy Rudd, was a, was a pretty well-known researcher at the Federal Reserve, said, why are we still on this inflation expectation stuff? Because there is no evidence for it. And the reason the Fed still does it is because it doesn't have anything else, which should really trouble people, especially if, you're, if the Fed is saying, we're absolutely certain that there's going to be inflation coming because we don't know, because we have no other way of deciding inflation and all these other things that we actually do, expectations, this labor market stuff doesn't really work in the real world, but they have nothing else. And that really should be troubling to people that they're using all of this evidence-free theories to set non-money monetary policies, which people need to realize are non-money monetary policies. So this whole thing is really a confidence game. It's really about projecting, we have all of this stuff that back up our assertion that, that, that we need to be hawkish in our monetary policies. And if you believe that the Fed is a bunch of enlightened philosophers doing the best and creating the most op optimal outcomes in the economy, then you'll act as if that's the case. And that's really what the Fed is actually betting on. It's crafting this facade of competence and technical proficiency when there actually is none of those things. And it's really the facade that's the point here. If the Fed could convince the public, especially with the financial media uniformly behind them, parroting their every word and move and telling the world how great it is, then the idea is this technocratic experiment can work through psychology. And so it's all about crafting this image. It really is the Wizard of Oz, this fiery floating head that everybody should just be, you know, don't fight the Fed. Just do what do what you're told. Don't think too much about it because these people know what they're doing. When in truth, they don't. They really don't. One seemingly incontrovertible measure that they can point to suggesting inflation, encouraging their extreme, you know, extreme tapering and uh, rate increase mania that they've announced recently is uh, wage increases, which have been rising very quickly. You tell us, though, in the 1930s, we saw something similar. I'm going to read from your quote right now. 1930s. The more millions left for the charity of soup lines before starvation, the higher the real wage rate had climbed. The head-scratching result even has a funny, fancy name. S-R-I-R-L, SRIRL, or short-run increasing returns to labor. And that quote comes from a December 31st essay at Real Clear Markets, which is titled 2021 began with promise ends on a sour note. You tell us some more. According to one of the data sets, real wage rates increased by an enormous and enormously confounding 16% during 1930-1931. Awful, awful years. What was happening? The same years when some measures of unemployment rates skyrocketed from around 3% in 1929 to upwards of 20% and more entering 1932. Here's possibly the key. While nominal wage rates did decline in most American industries during the Great Collapse, 
it was far less than overall prices had. Thus, the real wage jumped up by a sizable figure projecting higher relative labor costs onto firms. And then you explain that there are two reasons why we may see surging wages. What are those two reasons? Well, there's actually several reasons that have been put forward over the years for this. But yeah, let's start with that. I mean, how many people would have guessed, you know, most people don't spend their time looking back at the 1930s and studying the Great Depression closely, though I would recommend you do that. But anyway, I mean, most people would probably shock to learn that, yes, real wages and even nominal wages in the latter part of the Great Depression, but real wages skyrocketed during the worst couple years in U.S. economic history. That's, I mean, that's confusing. That's confounding. That's stunning. How could that possibly happen? Once you hear this, you're not alone in your surprise because for many years, economists were, were stunned and confused too. They tried to figure out how could that be because it's so counterintuitive. You would think that during a, a depressionary collapse of that magnitude, businesses would be cutting their wages as fast as they possibly can in order, not in addition to cutting their workforce, in order to keep up, to survive, to keep up, you know, keep cutting costs, to keep up with falling revenues. And that's not what happened. What we find is this, this confounding, surreal, I don't know how to say it. It's S-R-I-R-L. I don't know if it's an acronym so much as just an abbreviation, but I mean, how do we explain this short run increasing returns to labor, which is a fancy name for wages going up in a depression? And there are several ways to do that. I mean, just quite simply, some have proposed a technology shock. Some have proposed uh, labor hoarding. There's also something called the overhead effect and all sorts of other things that when you start getting beyond, you know, I know you made a, a point of pointing out the word publish, the weasel word in the title of the article, because when we look at wages, we, we usually look at the aggregated average that the BLS puts out or whatever data set it happens to be. And what happened in the 1970s and 1980s was that, you know, people realized that maybe we need to look beyond these aggregated wage rates or the aggregated headlines to start looking at disaggregated data, firm level data or industry level data and really trying to figure out what's going on. And what they said was, look, the published wage rate went up, but that doesn't really tell us the whole story. In fact, it left out most of the important parts of the story, which when you get into the, these explanations of labor hoarding and technology shocks and all these other things, what it really tells you is that the published rate went up because of all these other things that we don't see in the numbers, which, you know, it starts to sound a lot like the interest rate fallacy and what goes on in interest rates when you see, you know, the published rate of, you know, government bond yields fall, but we don't see the rates of mom and pop, what they would be charged on loans because they don't get loans at all. They fall off the radar completely. And so the published part of the Great Depression looks at it one way when what really happened may be something different survivor bias and labor hoarding. You mentioned labor hoarding. We'll get to that. How about survivor bias? How might that explain why wages rose during the Great Depression and maybe right now as well? Well, survivor bias in the, during the Great Depression, and this is something that uh, you know Ben Bernanke actually studied and, and wrote a couple of decent papers on. Yes, that Ben Bernanke, who was actually a, a relatively good scholar back in his day. He may not have been a great monetary policy maker, but he was, he was a very good, especially when we talk about the Great Depression, he was a very good scholar and produced a lot of good scholarship, including several papers on this SRIRL phenomenon. And survivor bias is simply, when we look at um, the firms that didn't survive, the companies that went out of business during the Great Collapse and the Great Depression, 
what they found was that most often these were low productivity, low paying either companies or segments of industries or particular plants or particular, you know, particular parts of businesses. And they were survived by the better companies, those that were more highly productive and therefore could pay a higher wage. So like the survivor bias in any stock index, for example, what happens is the, the published wage rate doesn't account for all of those low pay, low wage firms that go out of business. And so suddenly those disappear. And what's left are these higher paying companies, these higher paying jobs, which in the published aggregate mean, looks, makes it look like wages increased. when what really happened was this deflationary shock that got rid of all of the lesser paying opportunities. Another possibility, labor reserve. Can you tell us that companies would keep workers around even though they didn't need them? And also perhaps that they were keeping higher paid workers. Tell us what labor reserve might explain with an increase in the 1930s wage rate and perhaps today too. Yeah, there's sort of a survivor bias on that micro level mm -hmm. too, right? Because you're a firm faced with obvious revenue difficulties, but you know, you think maybe I'm going to get through this. I'm going to survive. There's going to be recovery at some point. So you're thinking about who do I let go? Well, I'm going to let go of the employees who I'm very, very sure aren't really adding much value other than the bare minimum who tend to be lower paying jobs or lower pay, lower paid employees. So you let those people go and keep the more valuable employees because that makes perfect sense. There's intuitive sense there. You don't really need to explain why you do that because Look, you thinking about the future and yes, it's bad today, but eventually down the road, it, it, it will be better. So even in that sense, the lower paying jobs get called from the from the economy. They get those uh, those jobs and their wage rates get uh, pulled out of the published aggregates. And it looks like the wage rate goes higher. And there's also another phenomenon known as labor hoarding. There's a reservoir or reserve of labor where companies say, you know, look, I know I have to pay my employees a certain amount of money just to keep them on. You know, you can't cut them down in hours and wages. Eventually, they will, you know, the employees are going to say, you're not paying me enough during a given week that I can survive. I have to go someplace else. So if you really want to keep this employee around, you have to pay them, say, a certain weekly amount to make it worth their while to stick around, even if maybe you don't have enough work for them to do. So what happens is, Yes, they, they, they work less hours, but you don't necessarily cut their pay as much as the, the amount of hours that are reduced. And so the average wage for that employee goes way up, even though they're working a lot less, just because you have to pay them some minimal amount to stick around. And I think this is really what, what we saw a lot of in March and April of 2020, where I think that that was the, uh, the, the phenomenon we saw where wages skyrocketed in those two months because of the same kind of thing. Not just a labor reservoir, but also the survivorship bias where companies said, look, we're, we're going to be shut down for a couple of months, and, but we want to keep certain people around, even if that means paying them more than there is available work. We can see that in two charts that you provide us in this article. The first chart shows the year-over-year -year increase in average weekly earnings and average hourly earnings, including four recessions. So it's from the 1980s all the way to present day. And we see that during the first three recessions, we didn't see this effect, but it's during this fourth one where we do see this increase. And I think it's Jeff, it has to do with that it was a shock like the Great Depression, whereas the other three recessions were not shocks. This one was devastation on part of the Great Depression, 
I heard that wages increased in, during the uh, Black Plague in Europe. That seems like a, a shock where this sort of thing would happen. And then as you were just explaining a moment ago on our second graph, we have the actual nominal value as opposed to a year-over-year increase. And we can see that spike, Jeff. We can see that huge spike in average hourly earnings and, and weekly earnings as well. Anything you wanted to add? Yeah, in the in the timing of it, right, Emil? It's mm-hmm. it, during the collapse. It wasn't like afterward when all Uncle Sam's helicopter money started mm-hmm. going flowing through the economy or the PPP grants. It wasn't anything like that. It was during the collapse when these wage rates went up most, which I think is pretty incontroversial these days that that was probably labor hoarding and survivor bias in the wage data. That's why wages went up. And then so the more inter- interesting and maybe questionable phenomenon is whether or not that has continued into 2021 and maybe into 2022. We don't really have good answers for that, at least from the wage data itself. I'm raising that as a possibility, given all the other labor data seems to suggest, including the labor force numbers, which indicate that maybe that is what's going on here, that we're not seeing inflationary wages at all, but rather the questionable deflationary wages that we saw during the Great Depression. And that's another point I wanna make too, I wanna stress, is that it wasn't just during 1930, 31, and 32 when real wage rates went up. They went up the most during those those years, but they stayed up throughout the entire Great Depression because some of those things never went away. The uh, the economy, for a lot of reasons, but most of the monetary reasons, never really recovered. And so this phenomenon of SRIRL was sort of a constant thing for whatever reason or explanation you prefer whether it's labor hoarding, technology shock, survivor bias, or whatever it was, uh, a combination of those things, it wasn't just a one-time thing either. It continued throughout that period. So I wonder if maybe we're not seeing the same thing since 2020, since the labor market itself and data outside of wages, despite the unemployment rate, continues to suggest that, yeah, maybe that is the case. But the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, doesn't believe so, Jeff. That's how you end your article, and that's how we'll and the show is that they believe this is not one of those SRIRL situations, that this is a real beginning to what may lead to further inflation. They're looking at the nominal numbers, nominal inflation rates. Well, we don't have time to discuss this today, but I don't think they actually believe that, but they want really? you to believe okay. they believe that. Okay. Going, how, going back to how we started this, this segment here. The Fed is crafting a facade. Mm. And so they're using anything and everything available to say that this is a legitimate phenomenon or legitimate policy. And so if they're turning to hawkishness because of inflationary pressures, they're going to interpret all the data in in whatever whatever data it can be in that fashion because they're trying to fashion a facade for you. I don't believe for a second that the Fed actually believes the wage data is inflationary, but it's useful for them to, to construct what they're trying to do, which is the psychological. They want to create a self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing, real economic effect because they're telling the economy, this is inflationary, look at wages, look at nominal inflation rates, and therefore consumers and businesses will act as if it's inflationary. And I guess that makes sense, Jeff, but they're just in a bubble, aren't they? They need to get outside and walk around and talk to other people that are not in the media or not in the academic sphere. It's been 15 years where this narrative, they're just hitting their head against the wall. Do you think they realize that their message is hollow one and no one believes this? 
or no, they, they're just, they, no, I don't think they, I know that they, they do know it's hollow. They do know how unsatisfactory all this stuff is. Again, going back to Greenspan in the 1990s, which was really complaint. And again, as we just referenced, Jeremy Rudd's paper, which hit the establishment like a, like a ton of bricks, you know, his saying, why are we still doing expectations? There's no evidence for the, the impetus behind that paper was this stuff doesn't seem to work. But again, why is the Fed continue to rely on these things? Because they don't have anything else. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a level of awareness in, inside the institution. But when your entire existence is depending upon maintaining this Wizard of Oz type illusion, you can see why they do what they do. Now, it doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean we should be sympathetic to these people. But you can see why they're doing these things and what they're actually doing isn't what you think they're I doing. I guess they'll get air cover from the business press and financial media after it goes bad. So they're not worried about looking foolish as soon as this year, I guess. I can't understand it. Why? why? Okay. There's no institutional incentives for change and for improvement. That's, that's really part of the problem. You know, the Fed independence is talked about in terms of politics when it, what it really has meant is lack of accountability. Nobody's allowed to criticize the Fed. And that extends to the financial media. That extends to its critics. Mm. You're not allowed to criticize the, the Federal Reserve. Otherwise, you're going to be deemed some kind of crank. And that's really what's happened here. As you said, this bubble that the Fed is in, they've created it for themselves out of necessity. This is what Greenspan's complaint was really about. What he was really saying is that since we don't do money, we have to put ourselves onto this pedestal, this bubbled pedestal. And that's the only way to conduct any possible or, or regional, what he, they think is rational policy regime, because they're not really a central bank anymore. They have to pretend they are. And in pretending they are, they have to do all these ridiculous things to maintain the illusion. We are going to talk about money in part three of this episode by reviewing October's Treasury International Capital Report, which offers a dim view, a keyhole view of what may be happening in the global monetary order and where we're heading next with the economy. The October Treasury International Capital Report. That's what you've all been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody but viewers of this channel are waiting for it. And Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, in an article dated the... What, what happened? The dates are no longer appearing on your... Pronounce, Jeff. You got to talk to somebody at IT. Oct November, no, December 17th, 2021. Tick October, the deflationary dollars behind the flat inverting curves. We're going to talk about October. It was an important month where we saw some changes in curves. And we're going to start out by talking about what happened with uh, the currency. The currency in China and Secretary Yellen. What happened that links those two events? Well, to start with, we had the debt ceiling problem that's been dragged on throughout the last part of 2021, which is people or anybody that's been watching us knows that we've had a T-bill scarcity effect because of the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department having to reduce its debt footprint in order to make, remain compliant with the congressional mandate and the congressional law regarding the debt ceiling, which in October, in the middle of October of 2021, there was a temporary resolution which allowed Janet Yellen's Treasury Department to issue more T-bills. In fact, there was a flood, a deluge, a, a tidal wave of cash management bills along with regular issues. It was announced on the 13th or something like that. And then within a day or two, the cash management bills started to flood the system. 
which should have been highly reflationary. They should have been really good. The system waiting for the best of the best of the best collateral finally got hundreds of billions of them almost all at once. And it should have kicked off this reflationary good times. Things are great. Kind of a, hey, the collateral scarcity is much less scarce these days. And it did in the Chinese currency. Looking at this graph, we can see how it clearly broke out of a trading range. Very positive. Great. It's getting stronger. Suggests things are going well in the global economy. The next chart, though, shows what we should be seeing a similar rally in treasury holdings in China. And we do see an increase, Jeff. We do see one, but it's nowhere near as pronounced as what we saw in the currency. Now, is it just because the currency is a little bit more volatile, perhaps, than the holdings uh, by China of treasuries? Maybe. I don't know. But we can agree that this is a bullish, reflationary signal. We can agree that it's the right direction, but there's questions about why and what and what's really going on there. But yeah, overall, that's, hey, Janet Yellen does the T-bills. It should be reflationary, which means less monetary constraint. And here we are, CNY and Chinese treasury holdings seem to conform with that idea. But, but then you asked, but if this worked in China, why doesn't it seem to have helped out anywhere else? And we're going to talk about foreign holdings of what, Jeff? Long-term U.S. dollar assets? What did we see there? Yeah, and we, we probably should back up here and reiterate our stance here because I think most people have the mainstream conventional interpretation of the tick data or what they think is going on with foreign holdings of particularly treasuries, which is the opposite of what actually takes place. What we've seen, historically speaking, and this is not conjecture, this is not opinion, this is actual fact that's backed up by the data in the tick itself, as well as commentary from the people, from officials and, and, and people operating the system around the world for a very, very long time, that when the dollar system is creating dollar resources, these euro dollars outside the United States, in plentiful, abundant amounts, that means more of these euro dollars end up in the hands of officials and reserve managers around the world who like to park them in safe liquid assets anyway. So they buy U.S. treasuries and GSE bonds and things like that. So more dollars, more treasuries held by foreigners outside the United States. When the dollar system grows tight, as we've seen periodically, intermittently over the last 15 years, starting with June and July and August of 2007, what we've seen the tick data is that foreigners end up buying a lot less U.S. treasuries and GSE debt because they have fewer dollars available for them to do so. And then in the most extreme dollar shortage cases, that's not that they don't buy less. They have to outright sell their treasuries because they're dealing with a dollar deficit so large they have to mobilize or they believe they have to mobilize their reserves in order to, to fill in what is a tremendous gap. So it's basically the opposite of what you hear in the media or the convention about how foreigners use their treasuries. Dollars are plentiful. They buy more. Dollars are tight. They buy fewer. And when dollars are extremely short, they actually have to sell them, not because they hate the government, not because they fear the dollars collapse or anything of the sort. In fact, foreigners selling their treasuries is consistent with treasury yields falling, which means treasury prices rising because these are both reactions to the same deflationary monetary condition. Yesterday, George Gammon released a podcast episode with a debate between Peter Schiff and Brenton Johnson. And Brent took the position that we're describing right now, that the dollar is very necessary. And Peter proposed that it no, the 
the treasuries are going to be sold in mass because we're so indebted and the country is in a terrible, terrible financial shape. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted to to hear that cage match and hear George Gammon play the referee and try to survive himself, and it was it was a good episode. And they all shook hands at the end. It was a good good episode. Okay. Let us go back now to what we were talking about with the tick data. So the officials seem to not be selling. They seem to be buying, Jeff. Is right. Official institutions thought October was a fine month, reflationary, positive, just like the Chinese currency and Chinese holding of treasuries. But here's the first fly in the ointment, fly in the soup. Private hands, no, not very enthused about what was happening in the global economy in October, and they were selling on net. Yeah, so we have private, which when you see private selling, it's actually an even more uh, stark warning than when officials do it, because officials are doing it because they're trying to manage their own mechanical affairs, whereas private, when private hands or private institutions and entities are selling treasuries, it's more about, hey, we're really stuck here. We got nothing else to do. So Yes, in October, we got this reflationary signal from T-bills that seemed to have to start out with China and China officials doing well. But then the rest of the world that took that in particular, we see this net selling in October, which is huge red flag about dollar shortage. It was in the first month, Jeff. I believe this is the fourth month in how many? It started in May 2021. And now we've had four months of selling between May and October. And the latest data is through October. It hasn't been released yet, has it, Jeff, for November? No, that won't be out for a couple more weeks. Okay. So we've now seen, and these charts, they show it to you, Jeff, when you see a collection of these negatives of selling, these occur during times that wasn't exactly reflationary, fantastic time. So it's suggesting things are not as well as perhaps the Federal Reserve believes or is trying to convince us that they are. And that is corroborated then by the curves that we saw flatten out and invert at that same time. Isn't that right, Jeff? So we have an independent corroboration. Yeah. So the, again, the tick data is pretty compelling. I would say it's very strongly compelling because it tells us a lot about, even though it's incomplete, it tells us a lot about what's going on in the shadow money system. As we talked about in the previous segment, outside of M1 and M2 and M3, what's left of M3 there's a there's a vast monetary system out there that we don't really have any good data that peers inside to tell us what's going on. And tick as a proxy has been a useful proxy because we can validate the movements in ticks with the movements in markets and the correlations there that give us a very strong explanation of what must be going on, not just in the shadow money system, but in the real economy in real time. So the tick data comes along a couple months a couple months behind. But still, it does corroborate what we're already seeing in markets, which is, as we've been talking about all of 2021, it was not the year of inflation, certainly not in any monetary sense. It seemed to be more and more the year of deflationary potential and actual deflationary money. As you just said, Emil, one month of net selling in tick is alarming and, and concerning enough on its own, but it wasn't just October. In fact, there was four months. And you know, this it, it doesn't happen where... You know, it's every month they're selling. It goes back and forth all the time. But the fact that there's any net selling in any month at all, let alone four of them, should be something that gets your attention, gets your deflationary attention, not inflationary attention. And so that's really these negative months have kind of piled up over the second half of the year, which goes along with, you know, just the U.S. Treasury curve, 
flattening out tremendously, even though nominal rates were rising during especially September and October. We see these flat curves, which is very much consistent with the deflationary tight money signal that we're seeing in tick. A day before you posted this article, Bloomberg had a headline that Saudi Arabia's holdings of U.S. treasuries dropped to a four-year low. Now, this is straight out of the geopolitical intrigue playbook, right? Saudi Arabia sending a message, so is Russia, and they're selling because they don't want to buy, you know, buy into the U.S. dollar hegemony system anymore. But in the notes here, it says that Norway also recorded an unusual low. Now, Saudi Arabia, famous, famously oil producing. Uh, Norway is famous for their fjords, but believe it or not, they have also, also oil. oil, lovely economy, <laughs> but a good amount of oil as well. Jeff, is there anything to be said, anything to be noted here that these two important oil producers, you know, for that particular month, October, they hit, uh, they hit lows in treasury holdings? Again, counterintuitive, hmm. right? You would think that with oil prices rising and oil flowing, that these countries would be flowing with dollars. They'd be flooded, and not just Jay Powell's bank reserve fiesta, but also through oil prices and the rising economy, the dollar should be flowing into Saudi Arabia and into Norway and into Russia because, you know, resources and real economy, merchandise surpluses through the trade of those raw materials should create the capital account surpluses that, historically speaking, get redeposited into U.S. treasuries and GSC debt and things like that. But in the last couple of months, up to October, from the tick data alone, but also anecdotal stories and information, that hasn't been happening either. So you have to wonder, oil prices are up, they're pumping a little bit more oil, but there should be more oil revenues flowing through those places. Why aren't they being reinvested in dollars? Is it because they hate the United States, they hate the dollar, they fear the US dollar crashing? Or is it because there's actual tight money in the financial system that is outstripping the reflationary or positive dollar flows from the merchandise trade. And that's really the, the implication. If it's a problem for Saudi Arabia and Norway, what are we really talking about here? Are we really talking about just sort of a ho-hum dollar shortage, which is if there ever could be a ho-hum dollar shortage, but just something, okay, that we've gotten used to, or is there something a little extra here? And so does this kind of start to explain why we've seen not just the yield curve, and I should be, let's be clear, the yield curve has flattened out even as nominal rates have risen, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. And that includes the last, the first week of January, where rates have risen, have backed up quite a bit, but yet the yield curve has remained as flat as ever. The curves are sending the signal that tick data, at least up until October, corroborates, which is not inflation, not the money for inflation, but the, quite the opposite, where retrenchment and growing dollar shortage. Jeff, I was going to make some jokes about Norway being famously anti-American, but I remembered that I have received several notes on Twitter and on LinkedIn from Norwegians, very complimentary of the show. And they even invited me over. I don't know if they invited me over so much as I invited myself over next time I visit Norway for a beer and some food. So I'm not going to make any of those jokes. Jeff, we've been off the air for a few weeks now, months, years. Final thoughts regarding anything that's happened in the last month that we may not have covered Anything to keep an eye on, anything that's keeping you awake at night or anything at all? Well, we have what's kind of, I think, maybe uh, contrary to what we had at the end of the year, which is the first week in January so far, we have this bond route where bonds are again selling off and interest rates are rising, but curves are not steepening. 
So what I would say is, you know, and we'll probably cover this over the coming weeks in more detail. This is nothing new that we haven't seen before. Just think back to late 2018, for example. We had all the same indications, flattening curves, negative tick data, all that stuff, and still nominal rates rose uh, all the way into November of 2018 then too. So, you know, in one sense that, you know, markets fluctuate, that's what they do. And we need to keep our eye on the monetary ball, which is what we're trying to do to separate the signal from the noise. Well, Jeff, I'm happy to be back. I can't wait to do it again next week. And uh, that's it for me. That's it for me. I'll talk to you again next week. Yes. Happy New Year to you, Emil. And let's uh, keep 2022 going.